I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Many performers, designers, directors, choreographers, stage crew, and theater administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. Palm Koch played the role of Itzik in the 10-time Tony Award-winning musical The Band's Visit, both on Broadway and on the first national tour. He has appeared off-Broadway and at many regional theaters across the country, including La Jolla Playhouse, ACT in San Francisco, Shakespeare Theatre Company, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, Theatre Calgary, and others. You may have also seen him on TV in House of Cards and Blue Bloods. He's spent the pandemic serving as a delegate in Actors' Equity Association and working on arts labor policies for the upcoming New York City mayoral election. Originally hailing from the San Francisco Bay Area, he studied theater and political science at the University of Michigan and lived in D.C. before settling in New York. Hi, Palm. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being on American Theater Artists Online. We're really happy to have you today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Happy to be anywhere. <laughs> right? <laughs> we all are. So um, I'm so happy to have uh, be able to talk to you and have you here on our podcast because, you know, you have some really interesting experiences, I think, to share with my listeners. You've been part of a, a huge Broadway um I, I don't know, I want to say juggernaut, but it really it isn't. I mean, just a very successful Broadway show, The Band's Visit, um, both on Broadway and the national tour. You've appeared at many different theaters regionally um, and also on TV. And you've, you have some, a really interesting background and connection between uh, theater and politics, which I really wanted to talk about. You may be the first person that I've had who, who has that sort of connection on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I don't, Bam's visit was definitely a, a critical juggernaut, um, oh, and go. it did recoup. It did recoup. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not a. It was not a. It was not Hello Dolly or uh, Wicked. Correct. But uh, it's got. It's got. Uh, it's got long legs, and they're still going out on tour, and it changed my life. And um, and yeah, I'm excited to talk about it all. Well, we'll talk about all of that, but before we even go there, I want to talk about you. How are you holding up during? You know, it's been over a year and plus of us being on this, you know, extended pause due to the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in the theater community, it's been really difficult for a lot of people to pivot or, or try to figure out um, where to go. So how has it been for you? You know, man, I, I know a lot of people have like discovered new, new passions and learned how to take care of themselves better and have you know, found pivots that they want to in their life. And that none of that is true for me. I have explored every single one of my passions. I have taught myself as much as I could. I have gotten in as good of a shape as I can. I have done everything I can to pass the time and I've hated every minute of it and I make no bones about it. Well, I think <laughs> so honesty is I'm good. bored and I'm anxious and I'm grumpy and I am very, very ready <laughs> to go back to my previous life. Well, I'm, I'm happy then for you that we seem to be approaching, <laughs> approaching a clearing in the woods at least for a bit. So let's hope that that means for you that you have a lot of, of, of creative stuff to work on. And, uh, you know, I hear yeah, you. I'm a lifelong liberal, but I'm very quickly becoming an anti-masker. Not in the Trumpian way, just in the like, for God's sake, get this over. No, with. of course. Yeah, we've gone, <laughs> we've been through a really tough year. So let's talk about something yeah. kind of light then so that we don't, you know, get Great. you even more depressed. I don't want you depressed on, on, on our <laughs> podcast. So let's no, talk. you got to remember, I'm on 
the Upper West Side, right? So this language right now is our is our love language. That's right. This is how we express joy: is complaining viciously. Oh my God! It's so funny you say that because I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in, in New York and, and and she's Jewish, and we were talking, and I said to her, you know, kvetching is my love language, and yeah. I said said that yeah. to my boyfriend. He wasn't too happy yeah. um, that that. Well, was you know, <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, it's I'm half Jewish too, and it's it's true. I mean, you know, people move to the Upper West Side so they can yell at strangers. Right. That's I why really, you move here. I really, it's really and, where I need to be, Paul. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the COVID was, you know, if, if you and your family members were all safe, was the best thing that could have happened to you on the Upper West Side. Because if you weren't wearing a mask or if you were breaking the rules, you were empowered by the CDC to yell at your fellow man <laughs> and discipline them. And the moment the CDC lifted the, the mask mandate, you could just see these people dying inside it's because seething. the joy that they had had for the last year was taken away from them. Well, you know, I, not to go on too much of a tangent, but I do want to talk a bit with you about complaining because I've had many people right. in my life when I'm complaining say to me, yeah. you know, don't complain, buck up, you know, do no it, da, da, da. Way. Oh, I want it's to kill the joy them. Of Right. And I want, you know what I always say, I say, listen, complaining is my love language. Let me use it because it's what gives me fuel to then do that thing. Let me complain first, get it out of my system. And then it gives me the energy. It fuels me to go do that thing that I need to do to make it better. Right. Right? Exactly. Complaining. Well, that's a very, that's a very, um, that's a very uh, positive way of thinking about it. I actually don't know if my complaining ever runs out. You see, you're, you seem to t- be talking about your complaining as if it's a process you need to work through. My complaining is a snowball that builds and builds and builds. Uh, and, you know, and but that's why I'm on the Upper West Side. There you go. Well, this all makes yeah. sense. Now I'm learning a lot more about you and, and I'm loving every yeah. moment. So let's talk a bit more about something personal too, which is your name. So as someone, right. those knowing I host this podcast, you've heard my name or seen my name, probably don't know how to pronounce it anyway. I've had a life of mangled pronunciation of my name. Yeah. It, it's yeah. Stefan Sittig, uh, which is very hard to say. So your name too <laughs> is very unique. Can you pronounce it for us and then explain to us a bit the origin Okay, well, my real name is Paul, uh, oh. but I couldn't pronounce Paul when I was a little kid. Um, mm. And uh, you know the Babar books, the French elephants? Yes, yes. There's a little kid in it named Palm. So I started calling myself Palm, and uh, that last went through elementary school and middle school and high school and then into college, I guess, because, you know, I had, and then I had, I had planned on reverting back to Paul once I left school but then everyone said why would you do that uh it'll help people remember you um mm-hmm. so I and also by that point my I you know my identity was just I was palmed myself so mm-hmm. Paul was a little weird I always I, I have retained the usage of Paul uh in more um professional situations like with you know dealing with the irs or at the doctor's office it's a little bit of a dissociative technique is when i'm paul i'm like i'm not palm you know uh and uh and oftentimes i'll introduce myself as paul to people that i think i'm never going to meet again because i end up having this conversation over and over again which is great if you're getting to know somebody but you know if you're just meeting someone for a second it can be a of a waste of time but then the problem is if it's somebody that i didn't anticipate uh you know speaking to again and then i actually start developing a relationship with them then i have to kind of double back and explain that well actually call me palm instead and so you know it is what it is i mean it's fascinating and it's a great name for an actor uh because you're right it does make you stand out um and it does make us well i'm half middle eastern and everyone always thinks it's a middle eastern name uh which it's decidedly not right (laughs) well no it's a french it's a french french for apple right yeah, yeah yeah and i think and you know uh me and and chris martin and gwyneth paltrow's daughter is named, <laughs> our name she's named apple <laughs> right, so yeah. i guess i share that with her you're the french Although version. i don't have i don't i don't have the millions of dollars but we can share the name right the name and then your last name is is not short for anything it really is just your last name and it's no nope, that's a that's a german name yeah, it's yeah. it's it's originally pronounced koch 
but right. uh, yeah. nobody gets that right. So, you know, most people say Koch. Um, right. Of course, in middle school and high school, I got cock a lot, right. uh, which I still get. And, and sometimes people default to that. And I go, uh, you know, why would you default to that pronunciation? Right. That's fine. Right. Whatever. I say coach, but I don't coach. have much ownership over it. Yeah. Well, I think it's great. I always like to ask people um, who have interesting names about their names because I think it does. Now we've learned a lot about you just in your explaining of that. Uh, yeah. that <laughs> so, so Palm, uh, let's talk a bit about one of the, the main reasons that I think it's really good for you to share your experiences on this podcast, which is about theater. And that is your huge experience with uh, what most people might know you from that are listening in your experience playing Itzik. Did I say it right? Itzik in the 10 time Tony award winning musical, the band's visit, you know, just a small little show that not that many right. people heard about the 10 time Tony award winning musical. Yeah, so yeah. of course we don't, we, it's not like we entered, we don't uh, put 10 time Tony award winning before every mention of the every show, mention but, of know. everything that you do from <laughs> now on and why not. So let's talk about, you know, what was your journey specifically to that production and how has it been? And were you, were you part of the, there was a national tour going on as yeah, well, right? Yeah. That, so the show had yeah. closed on Broadway and am I right that you were the last person to play that role on Broadway? Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, the show was announced, I think, back in like 2015 or 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been living in New York for a couple of years at that point. And, you know, the thing about the theater industry is there is more labor available than there are jobs available, uh, and, which is why it's very hard to break in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I have, you know, my kind of ticket in to um, to the industry has been the fact that I'm half Middle Eastern and I look a little ethnic, uh, which uh, I've, you know, that's so, you know, I've, I've, I've gotten, I've done a lot of shows that take place in the Middle East and I always kind of knew, well, you know, my best bet at kind of breaking into the Broadway realm is if there's a show where they need a lot of Middle Easterners because I didn't have an, I didn't have representation in New York. Mm-hmm. I didn't have credits in New York. Um, I, I had, I had, I had, I had some credits in New York, but nothing major enough to like, you know, put me in the, in the Broadway realm yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew, okay, there's going to be some show where they need a lot of Middle Easterners and they're going to start scraping the bottom of the barrel for people that they don't know already. And by they, I mean casting directors, right? Uh, So the band's visit was announced at Atlantic Theatre Company, um, great off-Broadway theater, uh, and it was obviously a pre-Broadway run. Uh, And I tried so hard to get in for that. I waited in line for EPAs. Mm. I sent emails. I mailed hard copies to the to casting, which mm. is like not something that's done anymore. I did everything I could and I could not get in the door, mm. um, which was, you know, it was, I mean, it was devastating because I, you know, I, I had built it up in my head as kind of like, oh, this will be the ticket in. Um you know, they, uh, sure enough, it got amazing reviews. They announced a Broadway run and then, uh, they needed to, um, cast understudies for the Broadway run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when I managed to get in. Huh. Um, and, uh, you know, I had done, I had done an off Broadway show prior to that, that like had some cred that maybe, you know, who knows how I managed to get in there, but I couldn't get in off Broadway. Uh, in any case, uh, I was cast as a, um, I was cast as an understudy and that process was, I mean, that was, I think back on it because I'm usually a very cautious person in terms of how much I, you know, how much money, I'm usually a cautious person in terms of whether or not I go all in on anything, but that was a situation where I just dumped every dollar I had left into, voice lessons um because i'm not a trained singer I, I did musicals as a kid but then high school and college and then the first years of my professional life i kind of stopped mm-hmm. um and uh and i had like something like five six callbacks and there was always like a week or two in between them so it was like this endless process of mm-hmm. you know mourning the fact that i hadn't booked it and then getting my hopes up again and then more and then you know sure. finally got it um, and, uh, I ended up getting cast as just, um, I to, to cover three roles. 
And, you know, and then a couple months before rehearsal started, I got a text message from the choreographer, a great guy named Patrick McCollum, being like, hey, uh, we realized we didn't ask you if you know how to roller skate. Do you know how to roller skate? Because the show involves roller skaters. And I am not an athletic person. My mom put me in musicals when I was a kid. No, not one organized sports team in my life. Mm. I have a, I'm a, I'm a. Six one person who like never really grew into my body properly because I was always doing musicals instead of instead of anything athletic. So like roller skating, the last thing I can do. But of course, I said, uh, "Yeah, I, I I can roller skate and I'll brush up." And then I proceeded to spend months just like, you know, <laughs> that was terrifying because I was convinced I was going to lose the job before it even started. Right. Right. Um, but uh, I started out covering three roles, mm-hmm. and I eventually got up to covering eight principles. Oh boy! Um, I think by I think by about December of 2017, December or January of 2018, um, which was a couple months after we had, we officially opened in November of 2017. Uh, I was up to about I was up to eight principles, which someone. At Equity said they thought was the most number of principal roles in a musical that had ever been covered, but we never really quite figured that, that out. It so I sounds can't. like, especially with principals. I mean, I've heard of people uh, yeah, covering Yeah, it's a technicality ensemble. because swings have covered more roles, but right. like, but there are no ensemble roles in the band's visit. They're all right. principals. Right. So right. like, work, it makes it sound like it was more work than it is, but technically that might be a record I don't think we'll ever quite know, but, uh, you know, off the record, I like to say that I might hold that. Um, you might be close. But, uh, sure, if not. Yeah. yeah. Um, Fantastic. And then, um, yeah, and I did that till I covered until fall of 2018 when I left, uh, when I left to go do a show for a couple months at La Jolla Playhouse. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, Brandon Uranowitz had taken over for John Cariani in the role of Itzik and Brandon was leaving to go do, burn this with Carrie Russell and Adam driver. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they promoted me up to that role, which, mm-hmm. um, which I, you know, was actually not expected because the thing I had been told for a year prior to that was, uh, you know, you're covering too many roles. It's, it's going to be too expensive for them to promote you up, which might've been true in another show, but, uh, the creative team, uh, you know, they, they were, they're they're pretty special people. I mean, the the director David Cromer, the producer Oren Wolf, everybody involved. They they definitely um, they definitely wanted to uh, reward people where they could, even right. if it meant having to you know go through an arduous recasting process. So yeah, I took over for the last couple months of the Broadway run, and then I didn't think I was going to go on tour. But they hired uh, my wife, Bly Voth, mm-hmm. to go on tour. And, you know, the, the idea of being able, you know, of the two of us and our dog being able to travel the country, both working, both, you know, introducing mm-hmm. this show to the rest of the country was kind of too much to pass up. So we were doing that until March 2020 when the world ended. Right. So how was the, how was the experience, uh, first of all? On Broadway, when you when you when you go on and it, well, when you take over the role and it's your role and you mm-hmm. get to play it for those last uh, the last part of the run, um, yeah. what did that must have felt great? I mean, it must have felt like you all that work that you've put in to get there it was not a short journey. Uh, under all that work doing understudy uh, work, which so many people on this podcast have talked about, the grueling uh, that you know the oh, understudies yeah. and swings deserve a special Tony in and of themselves. They should have a special category uh, because it is so much work, and then you get to finally um, own the role and be in the role for the last and put your mark on it for the last part of the run, and then you get to go mm-hmm. on this tour. So, what was yeah. it like touring the country with? with Blythe and um, with your um, dog. Uh, uh, was that special? How long did you guys get to be on the actual tour? <laughs> we were on tour for, for uh, I, think, I think we opened in June of 2019 and okay, we were good. there and, and we were in Pittsburgh. Mm. Uh, my last show was in St. Louis. Mm. Um, and yeah, until, until March of 2020. Um, I mean, that was great because, you know, the, the truth is I... I had learned that role uh, by understudying John Cariani, mm-hmm. um, who I'm a very, very different actor from. I have a different body. I have a different voice. I'm, I have a different, I'm a, you know, John is actually one of my like closest friends in the world now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and he's a he's a hero of mine in so many ways um but i'm just not the same person so i had kind of learned his version of it mm. and 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 in and you know made it my own as much as possible but when i took over uh you know i was i was still i still had mostly john's choices in my body and then some of brandon's um mm. and and so i had never actually built the role up Mm-hmm. anew with with Cromer with the director uh so going on tour was was great just because I could kind of take a step back and restart that process a little bit yeah. uh, and make it a little bit more my own yeah um and uh and yeah and the truth is when you know when I went from understudying to to doing the role uh I mean it was like I I had to go from keeping eight roles in my head to one mm-hmm. and like by the way the show was an hour and 30 minutes. Right. So it went from being one of the most stressful things I've ever done, which is trying to keep all that in my head to truly the easiest, loveliest job. I well, mean, yeah. I could have yeah. done that for years. You're at Glass House Tavern across the street by 8.45 PM. Wow. You go on stage, you're acting with people like Kristen C and Andy mm. Polk. I mean, some of the most amazing actors. It was, that was, that felt like my retirement. Those last two, those, <laughs> last two months when I was just doing that role. You're way too young to retire. I know, but I could have done it for the rest of my life, man. Right. It felt, it felt like a really, um, real leisurely and wonderful artistic. I felt like I was in the villages in Florida. (laughs) It was, you were able to indulge in your artistic self, uh, rather than be concerned about the seven other roles that you also had. Exactly. So, and then you go on. No more roller skating either. No more. Oh, great. Cause that particular. They They made me do that one time and I, kicked and screamed oh. and I told them that I was going to fly into the audience and I by that point I had, I had like grown a, a little less afraid of being fired so I put up such a stink and I think our choreographer had just like made me go on just because I complained about it so much right, and I did not fall off the stage but I did I as I was roller skating around look in the wings to see the entire cast and crew off stage watching to see if I fell because I had made such a stink about how I was going to. (laughs) The show within the show that nobody knows about. Exactly. That's fantastic. Well, and so, and then you're you're touring, you get to tour with, with, with your wife and the dog. And was that fun? Did you feel like tourists? Uh, Did you have, you have longer, longer sit downs or or whatever they they call them. So you can stay in one place for more than just a day or two. Yeah. The, the, you know, we got lucky. We only had a couple one-weekers and the one-weekers were only a bummer because on that Monday, you can't go sightsee. Mm. You know, you have to travel to the next city. Right. Um, but uh, look, we got we got really lucky because when you do a show, you get uh, per diem, which is your travel budget. Mm. And so there were two of us getting two per diems so we could stay in really nice places. Mm-hmm. And we, we kind of, we, uh, because we had the dog, we didn't fly anywhere. We drove everywhere. Right. And so, you know, we would go and see other cities in between cities and, and find mm-hmm. roadside attractions. And, yeah. and, um, I mean, it was, it's, it, it, it's scary to, 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 to know how, how, how hard we'll have to work and how long it could be until life gets that good again. Cause that was really a, you know, that was a pretty amazing way to spend eight months, especially right. compared to what followed. Right. Well, you never know. Let's put it out there. It may happen for you again, just cause it only you happened never once. Know. Yeah, you, you never, you know. never keep putting it out there in the, in the universe. That's my thought. Well, life can't get too good. Cause then I can't complain anymore. That's right. Then you, what do you complain about? Exactly. Okay. I know. Exactly. Uh, there's always I, know I can always find something. But, That's it. Yeah. There's always some little thing to complain. So let's talk a bit then about your other part of your career, which is your, you know, your off-Broadway and your regional work that you've done. You've, you've appeared at a lot of different um, regional theaters. You know, the list was so long, I had to pare it down in the bio because otherwise I would just be listing yeah. the, theater names for, for five minutes and my listeners would be bored. Yeah. Uh, so we pared it way down. But I mean, you've, you've worked at La Jolla, ACT in San Francisco, Shakespeare Theater Company here in D.C., et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So can you talk to us a bit about maybe uh, a production or two that you were involved with at any of those theaters that really stands out in your mind as something that you were really satisfied with? Maybe you were complaining a little less. Uh, <laughs> and, if so, and if so, why? What about it? You know, what was it that made you feel, okay, this is it. This is the sweet spot. Oh, man. Um, well, you know, the the... 
most of my regional credits are actually either in Washington, D.C. or in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of La Jolla Playhouse um, in San Diego. Uh, and that's because I moved to D.C. out of college and was a, a local hire there. Um, and then I, uh, I got hired for a show in San Francisco, which kind of led to some other opportunities there, which was really kind of, um, which was really nice because my, uh, that's where I'm from. That's where my family lives. And so that was great getting to go back and work there and, and see family there. Um, you know, it was great working at ACT on the main stage of the Geary, which is one of the biggest, most beautiful, oldest regional houses in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, mostly because I had grown up going to productions at ACT. I mean, wow. that, sitting in the Geary is, uh, that's where, that, that's where I saw most of the theater that I saw when I was a kid. Mm. Uh, so getting to work there professionally was, was, was incredible. Um, you know, my first, uh, equity contract was at, uh, roundhouse theater in DC doing oh. a production of Bengal tiger at the Baghdad zoo. Uh, uh, uh -huh. and that, that stands out, um, simply because uh, that production was, was that production and the, a production that I did shortly after Henry V at the Folger Theater were just mm -hmm. still two of the best productions I've ever been a part of. Wow. Um, and to be so fresh out of college and to find myself in productions of such high, you know, such high quality, I mean, including the design elements, which were, you know, mm -hmm. out, over the top, incredible in both of them. Um, and especially Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which is actually the easiest job I've ever had in terms of the least that was that was the role where it kind of I played Uday Hussein uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, gold gun wielding uh, sadistic son mm -hmm. uh, and there was some there was something about that role where there wasn't really anything I could do wrong in the sense of the director just let me kind of run and, 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 and any, any choice I made, no matter how outlandish seemed to fit with the character and with the script. And, uh, and I actually have found, uh, that the easier a role is, the easier time I have with the production, the more successful I tend to be in it, mm. uh, which is kind of antithetical to what I, what I think, what I, what I think a lot, which is, you know, you get the, the harder you work, the harder you work at a character, the, the, um, the, the better it's going to be. But unfortunately, I've kind of found that if it's not easy for day one, I'm never going to be quite as good in it as I want to be. Uh, and Bengal oh. Tiger stands out as one of those roles where I'm still waiting for, I'm still waiting to kind of slot into a character as easy as I did with that one. Wow. Um, but I think, but I think a lot of actors would say that you get that, that, you know, roles like that are kind of, once in a blue moon, unless you are a celebrity with a big name where you can pick your projects and you can make sure you only participate in projects where uh, you know you're going to be successful. Right. You're most of the time taking what you can get. Right, and I got sure. spoiled. I got spoiled really, really early in my career with a role where it just where I didn't really have to think. I could just kind of turn mm. my head off and run with it. Right. Um, and it's it's been hard finding something like that ever since, you know, right. I can imagine. Well, so I'm listening to you talking about some of your experiences and I'm hearing, um, born in the Bay area, San Francisco. So that's West coast. Then yep. you go to college yep. at university of Michigan. There you are right. You know, yep. Midwest. And then you make your way to DC. So you've crossed the right. country, uh, as you're growing up and developing your, your theater craft. So how did you get from those three places to, so tell us a bit, let's, let's take a moment and go back a bit. How did you start? Was this something theater was something you always wanted to do? You mentioned a bit about being a kid yeah. that didn't like sports or wasn't really ready. for Four sports. years old, uh -huh. four years old. My mom put me in uh, classes at Marin theater company, uh, which I actually got to go back and do a show professionally at, uh, I had Akhtar's The Invisible Hand in 2016. Mm. Um, but at four years old, my first... Uh, actually, that's the places I took classes when I was a kid were ACT and Marin Theatre Company. And I, within a course of a year, I got to do professional shows at both of them, which was kind of surreal. And I actually mm. got those shows because of DC Connections, which was uh, pretty, pretty coincidental. But um, oh. yeah, four years old, Marin Theatre Company... Um, and then it was just kind of, I don't know what to say. It was one of those things where I decided at four that I was going to be an actor and then just never really changed my mind. You got, you got bit, you got I mean, bit can, by the bug. We can go into the 
the psychological reasons why I might have, might have gravitated towards that, but it's it's as simple as it's just it just stuck. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you you didn't really uh, you just didn't participate in sports growing up, mostly because no you interest, were, no, no interest. interest? Other, I was going to say, were you just too busy? Athletic athletic boys boys terrified me when I was a kid. Interesting. Uh, huh. Roughhousing sports just yes. terrified me. me too. I, I wanted to be yeah. With the girls doing musicals. Isn't that funny? I had a similar situation. Do you ever look back and go, you wish you hadn't been so terrified by the guys and you could have hung out with the guys and done some of the fun stuff they did in team sports? Because I I miss like the trips and the, the, you know, all that stuff. I mean, health wise and agility wise, I wish I, you know, it's, it's, I wish I had had a little bit more of that. But no, I mean, you know, you take the good with the bad, you know? There you go. Not the male, the male bonding part. I always sometimes talk to my therapist and I'm like, oh, I wish I had done more of the like soccer and the stuff, you know, and I kind of grew out of it too. Right. Or he didn't really. Right. But anyway, so you were focused purely on arts and theater, um, yep. and which is great. So at a very young age, you knew what you wanted to do. And then you, you go off to, to the University of Michigan and you study both theater and political science, which is amazing. And yeah. I'm going to talk to you about that later in a bit. Uh, and then how did you get to, how, what's the connection with DC? I don't, I, I never could put together how you got to DC. Yeah. You know, so I got a BFA in theater performance at the university of Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, which was not the musical theater department. So the musical theater department is very, very well known. I was going to say, they, yeah. Yeah. they kind of trade off with Carnegie Mellon as having the most people on Broadway and most grads on Broadway at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not me. Uh, <laughs> and my department did not have a showcase. Uh, so, you know, for your listeners who don't know, a showcase is when you travel to New York and you perform for a bunch of agents and managers and you get signed before you even graduate, uh, mm. hopefully. Yes. That's and, right. and, you know, I, I had frankly known a lot of people that moved to New York. I always knew I wanted to go to New York. I knew I wanted to live in New York since the time I was a young kid. Um, but I knew a lot of people that moved to New York and really great actors who moved to New York and then struggled just Mm -hmm. because they didn't have representation. And it comes back to that thing of there's simply more labor supply than there is, than there are jobs available. Well, you have to get in the Uh, room. You can't get in the room without an agent. Yeah. 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 Um, And, and, you know, at this point, casting directors and, and direct, they don't, they don't need to work too hard to find labor. So if you are not put in front of them, they don't have an incentive to go and seek you out unless it's that rare show where they need more Middle Eastern actors than they can find, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I didn't want to move to Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. um, mainly because I don't like cars. Or, uh, mm. or I don't like traffic. I like I was cars. Say, you don't like driving, and traffic. <laughs> driving in traffic. Yeah. 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 And I didn't want to, and I, um, and I didn't want to go to Chicago just cause I'm, I, you know, I knew I wanted to be close to New York and, um, mm. DC, I learned from one of my uh, best friends, a guy named Gus Hegarty, who's a great director, um, great director in New York now. Um, mm. he, he was living there. He was a, uh, he was the associate director at the Shakespeare Theater. Uh, and I visited him and I learned how many incredible equity houses there were in, in DC. And, and by the way, like when I, when I talk about equity houses, it's, it's, I'm not uh, discriminating against non-equity houses, but I really am talking about, you know, where can you earn a make a living? Yes. Where can you, ex- where can you, where can you hope to exclusively earn a living doing 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 theater absolutely um, and i was talking to jenny, and, jenny yeah. mcconnell frederick who's artistic director at rorschach theater here in dc mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago and it's funny because 20 years ago in dc when i first got here after school in 98 uh you couldn't find you couldn't make earn a living in dc doing theater really unless you were working at the big ones you know shakespeare arena etc and then it developed so much in the last yeah. 10 years you can actually mm-hmm. earn a living as an actor now if you get the right equity there's enough equity houses yeah. right so i totally yeah. know what you're saying dc has a lot to yeah. offer a working actor yeah yeah and you know I, I i i was kind of under the illusion of oh i'll move to dc and i'll get all these credits and i'll get an agent in new york while i'm in dc mm-hmm. and you know it doesn't it's still not that easy, sure. but I did move to New York, uh, a union member, and I moved to New York with 
credits that made me look like a professional actor. I moved to New York a professional actor as opposed to an aspiring actor. Um, And and, um, and also, you know, I wasn't really interested in grad school, but, Mm. you know, I, I was still a, I was still a, pain in the ass who didn't know everything I needed to know when I graduated from from college and Mm. and getting to do those professional productions in DC was really my grad school getting to to work with yeah yeah you know I I didn't I didn't play I didn't play leads it was it was I was all supporting roles but that meant that I really got to spend a lot of time sitting back and watching and sitting back and learning and really learning how to apply what I had learned in school and in my life before that to actual professional situations. I got a lot of bad habits out of my system and I was lucky enough to have directors that kind of, uh, you know, beat the BS out of me, um, (laughs) which was people that people that really, that like that, that, nurtured me while at the same time kind of putting me in my place, um, which was really valuable. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I'll tell you a funny story about moving to DC and Mm -hmm. you can choose to edit this out or not. Um, probably not, but, uh, (laughs) but I have no shame about it because it was very, it was a very valuable lesson. I actually don't know what the lesson is, but I'm sure there's a lesson in it somewhere. As long as it's a funny um, story, I'll take it. It's, 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 it's cringy, but it's, but it's entertaining. Um, (laughs) you know, the Shakespeare theater company has this, their apprentice program where you can, you know, you, you get to, they, they kind of pay you a, a per diem and you get to be, you know, the understudies and play small roles in their productions. And I got it in my head that that was, I needed to get into that apprentice program after school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I figured I was, I was going to come up with a great strategy to get in because so many people apply for that program and a lot of people don't even get auditions for it. Mm-hmm. And I thought I am not going to accept not even getting an audition for this program. So I'm going to, I'm going to force my way in there. <laughs> so my senior year, I emailed the director of that program, whose name I'm not going to say, but mm-hmm. I still remember. Yeah. And you'll hear why. <laughs> um, I, I email and say, Hey, I'm thinking of coming. I'm, I'm a, I am a senior at the university of Michigan and I'm going to come visit DC because I'm thinking of moving there. And I'd love to meet with you and ask a couple questions. I didn't have any questions. I just wanted him to mm-hmm. know who I was so I could, you know, give myself a leg up for getting in the program. Right. Yeah. Um, and he goes, he responds and he says, you know, we don't usually meet, do this, but like, but uh, I'll make an exception in this case. When are you planning on visiting? And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I, I could kind of work it around your schedule. So let me know what works. And he gives me a meeting date. And I say, great. And I buy a plane ticket wow. to Washington, D.C. And I make a cheap hotel reservation, you know, beg my mom for some money for it. And I think I'm a genius, right? I, you got to you gotta put some skin in the game to, like, right. get some dividends, right? And I'm getting on the plane. And I email this guy. And I go, uh... And anyone who puts the timeline together, they'll be able to figure out who it is, but I don't care. I email him. I go, uh, yeah, just confirming our meeting tomorrow. And he emails back and says, uh, actually, I, uh, I can't do it tomorrow. And I send back a very kind of, you know, the, the, the moral, like, don't send emails when you're angry, angry right? right? So, like, I didn't take that lesson, right? Um, and I sent kind of an angry email back. Sure. And I got this scathing email saying, this is why I don't meet with people, like, yeah, right. you know, just putting me in my place. And I was on the airplane. <laughs> no so I, back. <laughs> and I couldn't get off. So I spend this, so, the, the like, the Ooh. very beginning of my DC journey was this day walking around the national mall in the scorching heat, like being told off by the theater that I convinced was going to be my ticket into the rest of my career. And it was one of the most miserable days. Uh, And I, uh, and it honestly nagged at me until about three years later when I got to do much new about nothing uh, at the Shakespeare theater. And I was like, Mm. okay, I didn't, (laughs) I got over that. You got there the long way. Yeah, that was the beginning of my DC journey and it was horrifying. And I always think back to that moment, both when I am getting uh, a little too confident in my own savvy and when I am about to send an email. (laughs) Well, here's here's a lesson for those listening in. If you do decide to do something like that, make sure you book five or six people to talk to in DC theater before you get on the plane. Exactly. There you go. So if one cancels, you at least have four others. There is one lesson. (laughs) Don't send emails when you're angry. That is the only lesson. You're right. And it applies to everybody listening. Absolutely. Write it and 
and then put it in the draft and don't send it and then read it exactly. three hours later and see how you feel. No, absolutely. Yeah. But listen, it's great. Thanks for sharing because I think being able to put your, you know, your own, you know, mishaps or mistakes or missteps uh, live to, pu- you know, to the public is great because it's really nice of you to share because it will be a lesson for others listening in. A lot of students listen to this podcast. A lot of people, you were just being scrappy and young and thinking yeah. I'm going to do it. And, you know, I, as a director myself and as a choreographer and as someone who hires people now in DC professional theater, I often, I would rather someone be interested and excited in what they're doing and, and be pushy, a little pushy, than someone just lay back going, come on, hire me and I'm just going to sit here and never talk to you. Do you know what I mean? I, I would. Mu- oh, believe me, I yeah. got my issue. I still hold my grudge with this guy, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> right, but at least you were trying and at least you were a young person yeah. with, with, a, with a drive and moxie, so good for you and I'm sure that still serves yeah. you today without the angry email. Okay, so let's talk a bit because one of the things you did at in University of Michigan that I think prepared you for your life and the life in the theater was you also studied political science while you were there. Right. Um, and you, to this day, I know, are very interested and motivated uh, on political issues uh, around the arts, I assume, but I assume around others as well. So let's talk a bit about how you've used your political experience now um, in to help further the cause of the arts, particularly in New York City. I know that you are um, working on arts labor policies for the upcoming mayoral election. So talk to us a little mm-hmm. bit about that. And I know you're active in Actors' Equity as well as a delegate. So let's talk about right. those two things. But first, let's talk about the New York City mayoral election. Uh, and, and how are you, um, um, what, what do you think about what's going on? And what are your, your views? And how are you helping with uh, to create better labor policies for artists? Right. Well, you know, I think that something that has frustrated me for a while and that really came to the fore uh, during COVID was the fact that when the arts are spoken about um, it's by city leaders, by politicians, really by anybody uh, in New York City that is not directly involved with the arts, it's spoken about as uh, really as a, as a commercial venture um, and more specifically as a driver of tourism. Right. Mm. When politicians speak about Broadway, they speak about its relation to tourism and its, uh, you know, its economic role in the city's health, which is absolutely true. I mean, Broadway brings in billions of dollars to the city and, you know, billions upon billions, if you really kind of you know, think about all the people that it drives here and all the money they spend on hotels and restaurants and all that. Um, but, you know, the, the revenue from Broadway alone is in the billions every year. Uh, but what's not really discussed is, you know, the the cost of living for arts laborers, yeah. uh, the, the issues in terms of uh, health insurance and benefits for arts laborers, the tax inequities for arts laborers, um, the long spells of unemployment for arts laborers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I really, I, I thought that the COVID crisis might be an opportunity to kind of push some of the mayoral candidates to shift how they speak about the arts. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I personally am a fan of Andrew Yang, you know, I think everybody kind of liked him during the democratic convention. And now that he's uh, a front, the front runner in the New York city mayor's race, he's coming under a lot of scrutiny. I think some of the criticism is fair. I think some of it is unfair. Mm. You know, I personally am a little less impressed or a little less taken with the universal basic income stuff and all the kind of, uh, techie ideas and actually a little more taken with the the lack of ego the reverence for expertise mm-hmm. uh the real the real ability to brush off criticism and stay focused on and excited by solutions to seemingly intractable problems yeah. um i think he actually has a lot of good characteristics for uh, a municipality for running a municipality you know mm-hmm. this is not a governor's race this is not a presidential election running a city uh, which is essentially just t- taking all the crap that Albany hands you and trying to figure out a, a, a way to make it work right. I think it comes with its own set of issues right. um, sure. but you know beyond beyond my preference for Yang as a candidate um, I you know he the fact of the matter is he's the front runner and he's been the front runner for a while and mm-hmm. he eats up the most media attention mm-hmm. uh, and so I was really hoping that he uh, and his campaign 
would kind of set a new precedent for the way they spoke about the arts. Mm. Uh, because I, my hope was that if he spoke about it in a certain way, that that would get attention, that the mm. other candidates might start shifting their rhetoric around the arts, mm. and that in future years, in four, eight, 12, 50 years from now, uh, when candidates run for mayor or when they run for local office in New York City, they speak about the arts uh, less in terms of its impact on tourism and, you know, creating more mural space, both of which is important, but they also mm -hmm. add in uh, what are the conditions for the laborers for this massive population from uh, ushers and box office workers, actors, designers, choreographers, stagehands, you know, what are the conditions for the tens of thousands of arts laborers that live here? Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 as somebody that has worked in the field for a while and that is, that is plugged into a lot of the things that are happening with actors equity, with our union, mm. um, you know, I, in an unofficial capacity, I was, I was working with the campaign, um, on with working with the Yang campaign on developing their arts policy. Um, and, you know, they rolled it out and sure enough, three or four other candidates, three or four of the other leading candidates adopt, rolled out their arts plans with similar language yeah. that addressed uh, the issues facing, face, facing health insurance with the issues facing the fact that, you know, arts laborers can often work without a living wage. Mm -hmm. um, and that is now the rhetoric around arts laborers in New York City. And I will be, regardless of who wins, I'll be really happy in four to eight years when the next batch of candidates are running and, and I'll be happy if their rhetoric around the arts uh, mimic the way that it's being spoken about now. Right, because you've um, set, that's, you've that's set a standard. Right, you've set a standard yeah. and brought up the standard to at least being this you know, minimum of what's required. You know, as someone who right. frequents you know, Broadway theater a lot and pays the ticket prices, uh, and as someone who is involved in the arts and theater myself, I have to say something, and I'll say it as someone who's... I'm just asking a question. It's the same question I ask... Yeah about other industries as well. Um, and that is, um, I go, to, I go to, to see a theater on Broadway, you know, see a play on Broadway uh, or a musical, and I realize how expensive it is, how labor intensive, and how expensive a lot of the labor is. And theater is a, a labor heavy um, uh, product, right? And I get it. The sets, the costumes, and et cetera, the unions, all that. What I don't get is, uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars are being made, as you said, and Who's seeing that money? Because it's not, as you just explained, the average theater worker. So just like every right. other part of our, our, our economy, of our capitalist economy, and I'm all for capitalism actually, but um, uh, just as a lot of other parts of our economy are, I wonder when I go into a Harris Teeter or a Kroger or a supermarket and I'm spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in that supermarket, especially now during the pandemic, who's, why are these, these workers getting paid X, Y, Z? You know, it's, it's a very small amount. Uh, to, to the people right. who, are, who are working and, and doing the actual work of the of the supermarket, so it's similar to me. And so I, I think we have a problem. And this is just me. I'll get off my soapbox for just a second. In no, no. in the United States of America, with the CEOs at the top making all the money, and the people actually doing the work and the laborers not participate or participating or, or being included in at least some of that um, profit in a way that they can mm -hmm. at least uh, earn a living. Right. right. Uh, that's and that's been a conversation. That's a conversation in the country as a whole, you know, uh, not just right. in theater. And the fact that you're raising it in theater is super important. But people don't tend to even look there. Right. right. So I'm glad that you're doing that. Well, I, you know, I mean, I, you know, I think that um, in terms of the question, in terms of where the money goes, I think there's a couple things to remember. The first is that Broadway and not off Broadway because off Broadway theaters are are most of them are not for profits they're 501 mm -hmm. c3 so their whole financial structure is going to be different but broadway itself is fundamentally a real estate venture mm -hmm. it's it's fundamentally about what theaters are available mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. <laughs> and the biggest cost is going to be paying for the for the space you know yeah. um and and it's it's a real estate shuffle uh mm -hmm. and you know the fact of the matter is real estate in New York is, has gone through the roof yep. and the more expensive real estate goes, the real estate gets, the more expensive uh, your ticket prices are going to get. Um, beyond that, you know, 
musicals, musicals especially, but plays too, have gotten so much more expensive that the capitalization, the, the cost needed that, that they need to raise before the first ticket is even sold. Those have gotten crazier and crazier. I mean, you know, Spider-Man set the record with 150 million, but like a lot of these shows are in the 30s, 40s of millions of dollars before the first ticket's even sold, which means it takes that much longer to recoup. And you can have shows that run for a year and a half, two years, and still don't actually turn a profit, right? right? Because they've spent so much money prior. And so they're, you know, and so even if they're not paying their actors a lot or they're charging a lot of money, they still are desperately trying to recoup. You also have a thing where, you know, there's fewer and fewer um, mega producers that are the ones running the whole show and putting all the money in. Mm -hmm. And you more and more have have shows where there's a bazillion quote unquote producers. Right. Um, Actually delete that last part let me say that again you have more and you have more and more shows where there's a, a lot of producers and there's a lot of producers on the bill mm-hmm. um yeah, because they're you know it's 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 less one guy putting in 20 million dollars mm-hmm. and you know i think for the band's visit which actually had a pretty which had a pretty low uh, capitalization for a musical, one of the smallest capitalizations for a musical in, in recent memory. We still, when we won the Tony for, for Best Musical, I think there were like 60 people on stage. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. you ha- which means that which means that any individual's potential, any producer's potential for profit, uh, no matter how, no matter whether the show recoups or not, their margin is so much smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it does kind of, you know, for everything I've said, you have this thing where tickets are getting crazier, expensive, mm-hmm. yeah. more and more expensive, but, uh, but still the money's being divided out in more places. And I really wish that actors had an easier time uh, getting into the royalty pool and getting residuals, mm-hmm. especially those that have participated in in pre Broadway uh, yep. labs and workshops, the creation of the um, parts, yes. yeah, yeah, because that used to happen more, yeah, uh, and it just it's it's harder. You know, there are shows like uh, Book of Mormon mm-hmm. where uh, if you were in a pre if you were in a pre Broadway lab of that, you are mm-hmm. still getting monthly checks. Wow, yeah. uh, the Hamilton cast got it, but they had to fight. They had to go through a really nasty fight um, Mm. to get it. Um, And it's something that that really should be done, especially for the people that are in the pre-Broadway labs. And it's just so hard to come by. But you know what? That's the fault of actors. It it really is. And this is the thing that you come back to with actors' equity. Mm -hmm. It's a unique union in it. It's a union comprised of individuals that are often fighting each other for the lowest possible wage, which is not something you see with the Teamsters. Right. You know, it's not yeah. something you see with yeah. other unions mm. because so many union members are, you know, we've wanted to do, I, I've wanted to do this since we, I was four years old right. and producers and, and our leverage essentially is our ability to say no and walk away from the table. Right. But if producers know that the workforce has been dying to do this and say, since they were four years old, they feel emboldened yeah. to uh, withhold, withhold benefits and withhold right. residuals and royalties and all that stuff. And Excellent you point. can't really blame anybody else for that, no. but ourselves. That's, a, you that's know? such a good point. And you know, I'm, as I'm listening and, and and as I've been interviewing many, many performers um, over this last um, year and a half of doing this podcast so far and the 44 episodes or so that I've had, I've, I've, I'm noticing that a lot of performers are starting to, with this pandemic, learning to say no and learning to find, um, you know, sort of a bit more courage. It's so hard to do in an industry where everyone is so desperate, right, to get to, yeah. to whatever they, they consider to be the pinnacle of success. And for many people, that is Broadway, whether we like it or yeah. not, that's what they see. So it is hard. And, you know, hearing the stories of my fellow uh, friends and actors who had to basically uproot their entire life the minute Broadway shut down, too. So a lot of them are now in this year and a half, they've developed other skills. They've developed um, other things that they can do aside from perform that is now making them go, hmm. So it's going to be interesting. Right. And also with the young generation, I teach at, at George Mason University, I teach music theater, and I'm looking at the young generation going, they're not going to put up with a lot of the stuff that they're going to have to put up with if they want to get to where right. they So who's going to be left to perform? I think a lot of the well, it's, a, you know, it's going to be interesting. Well, it's a, it's a middle, there's a middle ground because I think, I think that people often tend to see it as a binary choice of like, you know, walk away and strike or just eat crap, you know? And, 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 
and it's not there are ways of the more you learn about the business mm-hmm. the way you learn how contracts work the more you really learn actually the financial nightmare that producers face trying to put together a show mm-hmm. actually the more empowered you'll be in negotiations you know um, a mm-hmm. lot of negotiations a lot of quote-unquote unity on the part of actors falls apart because people say we're going to threaten to walk away if we don't get x and x in that instance may be actually economically unfeasible for the producers right. uh, but the more you get to know the business like the, the more you'll be able to go to producers uh, with demands that are actually too reasonable to turn down mm. um, and that can be opaque and that can be that can be mm. it's never clear uh, but uh, it, it behooves us all to really learn about the economics of the industry as much as possible because that's how we actually turn the tide. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that uh, we have people like you who are looking out uh, for um, arts laborers and who are starting who understand both sides and who are who are um, well versed. You know, knowledge is power, and I like your 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 call out for people to really understand in our own industry how things work beyond just what we do on stage. So, right, I think that's that's fantastic, and thank you for putting that out there. Now, let's talk a bit. You know, we're almost out of time, or actually, we are out of time, but it's fine. Let's keep talking a bit. Let's talk a bit about your projects coming up. Do you have any? You know, you talked about how the pandemic made you. Um, kind of take a stop and, and you didn't really develop any, you know, major hobbies of any kind. You're not crocheting or, or, you know, well, I did baking. a lot. I just hated it all. There you go. You complained about it. You were upset. But yeah, exactly. now, now that things are, we sort of see a glimmer of hope here and things are starting to open up. I know as, as we're, we're speaking, things were, are going to be opening up very soon, fully in, in New York, if they haven't already. Do you have any exciting projects that are coming up with that or any live ones for 2021 or anything online? Or, you know, what do you have in the coming up? Are you still working on finding out more or? Well, you know, I, 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 I can't talk a lot about it, but mm-hmm. I do, um, I, I'm actually involved with, a with an independent film that we've Ooh. been fundraising for that I'm probably going to film in December. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, we've surprisingly, uh, put together a lot of the money for it, which I have no idea how we've put together as much as we have by now. <laughs> but, you know, I think everybody's sitting on a lot of cash. So mm-hmm. for any of your listeners, if you're looking to hit up your relatives for funds for any new project, now's the time to do it because right. none of them went on vacation for the yeah, last year. A lot year. of people have saved a lot of money um, in the last in the last year, the year and a half. Yeah. So so you've got yeah. potentially independent film. Um, anything yeah. theatrical? Are you moving more to it's hard? It's still early for theaters to know. I mean, a lot of them are talking about yeah, opening you know, up in the fall. They're, 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 they're really the th- in the theatrical realm right now in New York. They're really putting together uh, the casts that were on Broadway when the pandemic shut down. That's first. Um, yeah. So there's really there's really not much in the way of new shows being cast yet. Uh, they're not even really casting replacements yet. It's really just like all the shows that were up prior to March. They're they're figuring they're they're getting as much of their original crew back together. Mm. Um, you know it's. It, Producers, you know, unlike the 2008 financial crisis, where a lot of the people that funded new productions were they their bank account had taken a big hit. Mm-hmm. This year is actually on record for more disposable income in the mm. bank accounts of Americans than at any other point in recorded history. Correct. Um, yes. So what? So you are going to see a ton of new work. Uh, the trick is once you start spending that money, once you start spending your capitalization cost. Uh, you can't really take it back, right? Yeah. And so I think that, you know, it, it looks like COVID might kind of maybe be coming to an end in the United States. You're not going to really see that money unleashed until it's a sure thing. Um, and so there's a lot of really exciting projects, both on and off Broadway, um, that are waiting in the wings that mm-hmm. producers are ready to start working on. Uh, but they're all kind of going to wait and see mm-hmm. 
until they know for sure that it's safe to start spending that money and start casting those roles and making Absolutely. those announcements. I was talking um, to someone else. So I think else. there's going to be a bit of a delay. Yes, you know, it's a traffic. The, new produ- the old productions and the new ones. Yeah. It's a traffic flow thing. It's a little bit of a traffic yeah. jam. So there's a little bit of a jam log of, of things that need to happen first so the other things can happen and free up. So I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. We're going to be seeing this. So we'll be waiting. So for those that want to wait and, and want to kind of follow what you're working on, on both the, I think it's fascinating, both the performance theater side, but also what's going on with the mayoral election and the arts labor policies and all that. Uh, people want to keep updated on what you're doing and what you're working on. Where can they go? Are you one of those social media people? It's, it, I, I, I am unfortunately on Instagram and Twitter because their <laughs> social media is absolutely evil. But yes, but. <laughs> uh, but it's just Palm Coach. So okay. on both of those. And yeah, and I'm going to be focusing a lot, at least for the next month. Um, actually, the, the mayoral primary, which the Democratic primary decides the, the general um, in, in later this year, just because it's such a heavily Democratic uh, city. So I'm going to be working hard for the next month, just trying to get arts laborers to register to vote because we do yes. not typically vote in full mm. force. Another you know, Bill de Blasio won by the equivalent of 1% of the city's population in 2013. Wow. I did not know About that. 200, yeah, he got 250,000 votes. He won by 90,000. Uh, and wow. the city has almost 9 million people yeah. and arts laborers do not vote. Wow. And if we really want, if we really want politicians to speak about us and, uh, and the issues that affect us in a substantive way years into the future, we have to show them that we are a voting block that can actually change the course of the election. So I'm focusing on that for the next month. And then hopefully I can get on stage again because I am sick of taking long walks and exercising. <laughs> and being on podcasts. So exactly. thank, <laughs> thank you, Paul. This has been a wonderful uh, chance to talk to you. And I'm really fascinated. I'm so glad I had uh, opportunity to speak with you because I'm always fascinated people who can talk about more than just theater. You can talk about politics as well. And you can talk about the influence that politics, especially local politics, can have on our theater and, and, and on our artists' laborers. So thank you so much, Palm. And I, we'll all be watching and we'll be following you on, on, on that darn Instagram and Twitter that we hate so much. We're going to be yeah. following you and making sure that we keep abreast of what you're working on and hoping for the best as we get through these mayoral elections. And as we get into a new uh, season of theater, uh, we'll be watching you for that as well. I'm sure we'll see your name up there as well as in uh, film and TV. So thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate it for you being you. out here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the American Theater Artists Online podcast. This episode was edited by Zach Walsh. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. If you'd like to share your feedback or send us comments, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at American Theatre Artists Online.